When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On Generation Anthropocene, we like to bring big, provocative ideas to this show. I personally struggle to concentrate. I like to be productive and coffee only goes so far. For me, it's really easy to overdo it with coffee. But recently I found this little shot that gives me a great energy boost. It's called Magic Mind. It has matcha and ashwagandha and other natural ingredients. And I've really cut down on my coffee intake. Magic Mind helps me get in the right state of mind for a productive day. And you know what? Now that I'm drinking less coffee, I'm sleeping a lot better. So it's really had a lot of positive effects in my life. I really encourage you to try it as well. Go to magicmind.co slash genanthro. That's G-E-N-A-N-T-H-R-O. You can get 40% off of your subscription for the next 10 days if you use my code genanthro20. That's G-E-N-A-N-T-H-R-O. Check out Magic Mind today and feel more productive. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. One of the things I love about the Anthropocene as an idea is that it brings together human timescales and geologic timescales. And sometimes it's really hard to sort of square those two things. When it comes to climate change, the problem isn't that the Earth is warming. The problem is that the Earth is warming fast especially if you have an appreciation for the geologic timetable, you look at this moment in history and say, this is too much change all at once. It's why we're talking about mass extinction and a potentially uninhabitable earth in the future. But there's still a lot of work to be done to wrangle those different timescales into an understandable intellectual frame so that we can begin to plan for what we might expect and what we're going to have to be dealing with. There's no question it's bad, that the future is not looking good. However, I think we also sometimes underestimate just how resilient Earth's organisms are, different ecosystems are, and how different species might respond to this moment. 
And so that really brings me to today's guest, Michael Webster, who's just written a book called The Rescue Effect, which is really centered around all these opportunities that there may be in the conservation space for dealing with the environmental crisis and sort of giving nature a boost, giving organisms and ecosystems an opportunity to survive the environmental crisis that is unfolding rapidly before us. I started off the conversation with Michael Webster by asking him, you know, why did you want to write this book in the first place? So this book was an outgrowth of my work on corals. And when I took over as being the executive director of the Coral Reef Alliance and started doing really cool conservation work at the community level in a bunch of different countries that was really meaningful and really powerful, is we started working on that for a few years. I had this sort of nagging question in the back of my head, which was, so this is great, but are corals actually going to be able to make it? Because these, these interventions are small interventions and the threats and the pace, you know, the rate that you were talking about before is really high and fast. Yeah. And so are we ultimately rearranging deck chairs in the Titanic here, trying to do nice small projects that make us feel good about getting something done that at the end of the day aren't going to add up to anything? That was my concern. And so I started talking to experts in the field saying, hey, can you point me to the research that talks about whether or not corals can adapt fast enough? And I got really consistent answers. It was like, wow, Michael, that's a really good question. Yeah, we should probably answer that. I'm like, what, nobody has answered this question? You can't just like point me to the top 10 papers on this? I'm like, no, not really. I was like, well, why not? Well, it's hard to measure. It's difficult to do. And, you know, we've done all these other really cool papers. I'm like, Paul, I work in coral reef conservation. If we don't answer this question, well, what's the point? And so yeah. I started pulling people together to do a research project that we're still publishing papers on this, on trying to model out what the future might look like for corals and ask, do we believe that with the ecological and evolutionary mechanisms that are going on, are they going to be able to keep up fast enough at the kind of change that they're likely to see in the future? And those papers really get at a mixed bag answer, which is actually way more optimistic than a lot of the other answers, which is corals might be able to do this, provided certain things. And those certain things are usually we do eventually start bending the curve and mitigate climate change. And the second one is we do things to manage corals sort of locally and regionally to give them a little demographic benefit. So that's sort of the background. And so as I was looking at this, it's like, huh, all right, so there's some cautious optimism here. And this is a question that we didn't really have a good answer to before. Great. How are other people thinking about this? And so I started looking more broadly past the coral world to say, okay, what kinds of other ecosystems, what kinds of other systems are having these same sorts of problems? And how are people thinking about them in those different places? And so when you look at the book, what you see is my exploration of, I started thinking about this in the coral world, and then I stepped back and looked across all these other fields and summarized some of what I found into those chapters. Yeah. And I mean, the book is a global tour. I mean, we're in India with tigers, we're in Australia with possums, we're in Pleistocene Park, and we're in the ocean with corals and, and on and on, chestnut trees in, in North America. I do think like some of the common elements with each of those settings and ecosystems is that there are local stressors and unique conditions. Maybe it's invasive species, maybe it's other kinds of historical anthropogenic or current anthropogenic stressors. And then there's, of course, the boogeyman, climate change and ocean acidification, for that matter, that are hovering over. And in a, in a second, I think I want to get into some of those examples. Before I do, though, I want to talk a little bit more about mass extinction and this idea of the sixth extinction. Early on in your book, you 
make reference to the mass extinction idea. And you have some numbers and data that I think may be surprising to people who have really come to believe we're, if not already in the sixth mass extinction, we are on the precipice of it. Can you talk a little bit about those numbers and how we should understand extinctions today as well as extinction rates? And if you don't have those numbers handy, I've got your book right here because (laughs) you might not have committed it to memory and that's okay. (laughs) Sure. I'm happy to talk about that because as you pointed out, that was somewhat surprising to you. That was also somewhat surprising to me. And basically Mm. what happened when I started looking at those numbers was once I realized that we're at the very front end of this. So if you imagine, for example, we're at the beginning of a six mass extinction, we're certainly going through an extinction event. There's no question about that. What will it rise to the end is still an open question. But the thing that really struck me is we're at the very front end of it. And so like in that first chapter you mentioned, I talked about what scientists have estimated the current extinction rate to be, and that it's a thousand times higher than it was before humans started messing with the planet, which is really huge. But if you then play that forward and you say, okay, well. Actually, actually, let me jump in just to make sure everybody understands that. So there's a sort of normal, quote unquote, normal extinction rate, background rate that's happening all the time in nature. Extinction is the norm. And now we're a thousand times above that, something like that, ever since humans started stressing out the planet in a thousand different ways. Right. And so that's a coarse estimate, but let's pretend it's true for a minute. If you use that estimate, you say, okay, well, how much of life on earth counted as species are we likely to lose going forward? And if you look at that over a century, that adds up to something like 1% of species lost, which when I looked at that, it's like, okay, I don't want to lose that 1% of species, but it's not exactly game over for biodiversity on the planet either. Now, if you start saying, what about a thousand years, what about 10,000 years, then your, your numbers get much, much larger. But at least on the kind of timeframes we're talking about for humans thinking about economic activity, the kind of timeframe we're affecting climate, based on a simple estimate like that, we're not at the precipice of losing huge fractions of the species on earth. We are beginning to lose them more quickly. And to me, this is one of the things that really gave me some hope as I was working on this project, which is, wait, we're still at the front end. You used the word agency before. I think that's the right concept. We're at a point where we still can make choices that affect this outcome dramatically, that we're not necessarily destined to lose a large fraction of the species on the planet. And I find that much more motivating in terms of trying to get something done than just saying, oh, everything's been lost. Amen. Do you take issue with the term, the sixth mass extinction? I mean, I think on one hand, with nods to Elizabeth Colbert and all the great work she's done, I understand why it's being deployed, but it does have a sort of powerlessness, ominousness about it that I think can feel like despair and that it can can make us feel like there's nothing to be done. You know, how do you understand the term overall? I mean, I'm sure there's a there's a middle ground here. Yeah, I don't take issue with it. I actually think it's a good way of sort of describing a key risk in this moment where we are right now. And it's not as though it has happened yet. You know, the number of species that we know of that have gone extinct is incredibly small. It's this tiny fraction of 1% of the species that we know of on the planet. But there's so many warning signs. And so we're at this moment in our history where we can start imagining the future and there are real risks to the future. You know, you take coral reefs, which is the system I've worked on the most. I told you that there's some reasons to be optimistic in the work that we've done, but those assume that we get some kind of handle on climate change in the decades to come. If we don't choose to do that, if that's the path that we're on, well, it gets a whole lot worse for coral reefs and the likelihood of them making it through this goes lower and lower and lower. 
That that rings true. I mean, I, I think it gets back to what I was trying to say at the outset about time, you know, and trying to get our heads around time that I think if you study Earth history and if you have an appreciation for the major extinctions events of the past, even the most recent mass extinction with the dinosaurs, you know, it still takes some time for it to unfold. But it's such a chasm between now and today and the way we experience time as humans that I feel like I war personally with whether it is a useful term or not. I don't think it's scientifically inappropriate, but I also do feel like it does have a, a powerlessness to it, as I was saying before. Maybe that's a good segue into the rescue effect and you know what your book is all about. So maybe introduce this idea to us and tell us a little bit more about you know some of the flavors and different forms of the rescue effect. Sure. So the concept of the rescue effect, as I use it in the book, is really getting at the fact that nature is actually very good at dealing with environmental change. So if we look at it in the context of like an organism or a group of organisms, if you break it down in nature, there's actually a whole bunch of different things they can do when their environment changes. They're not just at the mercy of that change in, in environment. In the book, I broke it down into six different processes that are happening in nature that all give rise to this sort of same kind of response, which is nature being able to rescue itself. And in the book, I liken it to a thermostat that, you know, if you're in a room and it's getting warm and there's an AC unit with a thermostat on, you get above a certain temperature, it clicks on automatically and things start to happen. This is more or less what these things do in nature is they're triggered automatically in ways that help organisms and help species adapt to a changing environment. You were going to ask me to give some of the flavor so one of the ones that's starting to happen everywhere on the planet right now is what I've called in my book, geographic rescue. If you think of any group of organisms, they live in a particular place, they experience a certain environment, and they may be just fine so long as that environment doesn't change. But once the environment starts to change, they may find themselves in a location that's no longer suitable for them. Well, most organisms have some ability to disperse to new locations, and it may be that places where they didn't used to live are now becoming more suitable. And maybe a few individuals find there, start a new population in that new place. And over time, the whole population shifts from one place to another place. That's what I call geographic rescue. And we've seen it plenty of times in history, like at the end of the last ice age, much of North America was scraped clean by ice. It then got recolonized by plants and birds and insects and fish that moved into that area once those habitats became available to it. Right now, what we're starting to see in the ocean and on land is lots and lots of species starting to move their range. The basic pattern is they tend to move from the equator toward the poles, or they tend to move from low elevation to high elevation. But the reality is more complicated than that. Yeah. I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but that different organisms are able to move at different rates. This is going to create some, uh, what is sometimes called novel ecosystems, interactions that did not exist before, organisms existing in places that they hadn't been before. What are some other forms of the rescue effect that I don't know if we need to go through all six because it might take up too much time, but just to give people a fuller, richer idea of this concept. Sure. I would, I would choose then to talk about evolutionary rescue. And I pick that one because this is something that you study evolutionary biology or you think about evolution in the abstract and you think of it as this thing that takes a long time to happen. And that's true when we're talking about the rise of humans from ape-like ancestors, monkey-like ancestors, et cetera. That does take a very long time. But what we're seeing right now in the world is that as conditions are changing really quickly, some things are evolving quite quickly, um, yeah. faster than we probably would have thought 10 or 20 years ago when we were looking at this. And the number of examples is starting to add up of where either 
we can demonstrate that things are evolving very quickly, or we think maybe they are. It's hard to measure, but there's a growing list of examples of organisms evolving new traits to deal with new environmental conditions. And that's great news for conservation. And now some of that is, and I forget all the different categories, but some of that is maybe, I I might screw this up, phenotypic, is that the word I'm looking for? Where organisms have an ability, but they're finding ways to express behavior that's already in, you know, their genes, but they're now able to express those abilities in new environments because they're facing new conditions. So there's one form of it where it's already sort of in the evolutionary DNA, as it were. But then there's another form of actually like straight up evolution happening at an accelerated rate. Or are these two different things? Am I conflating things? No. And those are the two things that tend to go hand in hand and they get hard to tell apart. Yeah. The phenotypic one, a good example of that. So a few years ago, I went hiking in the Himalaya in India and was up higher than I'd ever been before. And my body automatically responded to the high elevation. I didn't have to evolve to do it. I already had genes in me that were capable of dealing with high elevation. I was changing the composition of my blood and then changing my behavior when I was outside to make sure that I got enough air. So there wasn't anything I had to do. It just happened automatically. That's a case of my phenotype adjusting. And organisms are also adjusting their phenotypes everywhere. And so that's a separate piece. You can get on top of that and mixed in with that evolution. For example, in corals, you know, over the last few decades, corals have gotten demonstrably better at living at higher temperatures. And people have measured this and shown that that they've shifted, I don't remember what it was, like a degree Celsius or something like that. But we don't know for sure how much of that is phenotypic and how much of that is evolutionary. Another example from the book, if I'm saying the name right, cichlids in in Mm -hmm. Lake Victoria, right? And then there's a, can you tell us this story a little bit? This one actually leapt out to me in terms of sort of evolution happening at a pace that was faster than I'm used to thinking about it and in ways that I'm not used to thinking about it. Yeah, that's a really fascinating story. So it's based in Lake Victoria in Africa, which sits at the point where Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya meet. It's a really very large lake. But it's not an old lake. It's estimated to have only been around since the last ice age. So it's maybe 15,000 years old. In those 15,000 years, something like hundreds of species of cichlid fish have evolved to take on so many different niches within that lake. And it's probably the best example of rapid evolution of species we have on the planet. And so when scientists started studying this, especially like in the 1970s, they were just in awe of all these different forms. But In probably the late 1950s, definitely in the 1960s, fisheries biologists decided they wanted to try and get some bigger fish out of that lake. And so they introduced a fish called the Nile perch, which is this enormous, enormous fish, which came in and gobbled up all these cichlids, which tend to be quite small. And so there was this incredible decline in cichlids. There were lots of people publishing papers about the loss of species and the change of this ecosystem and all the negatives that it's producing. It turns out that a lot of these species were in fact lost. They went extinct in that process. But as the lake stabilized and fisheries started to increase and people started to catch more of these Nile perch, a whole bunch of cichlids that people thought were lost started coming back, that a few of them had survived. They'd managed to recover in the lake. And now there's probably as many of these cichlids in the lake as there were before the Nile perch was introduced. As many individuals, species have definitely been lost. But then here's the really interesting part. Some of these animals that are coming back are not quite the same as they were before the Nile perch introduction. Some of them have changed shape or behavior, and some of them appear to actually be hybridized. So you get a couple species coming together and forming something new that's a combination of those species in the past. 
Now, conservationists have often not liked the idea of hybridizing because it means that your like good species that used to be around are now this sort of mix of new things that you don't have those old species. But what may be happening in this lake is that the mixing of those species together is actually creating new forms that are better generalists, which are better at dealing with rapid environmental change. And so we may be in a situation where we're actually seeing evolution in action and new species sort of emerging phoenix from the flames on the timescale of decades. That's astonishing. And, I, you know, the whole chapter, like I had to step back and remind myself of some like first principles of evolutionary biology. And I had to remind myself, first of all, that speciation is not binary, that it exists on a, along a spectrum and it's a process. And then I also had to remind myself exactly what hybridization is, right? Two organisms that are able to produce a viable offspring, I guess, but that they have- Two organisms of different species. Of different species, but they have enough common ancestry that you can create new species that can then have offspring. Is that right? Do I have hybridization right there? Yep, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can hybridize without being able to produce offspring, but if the hybrid is going to lead to a new lineage, you have to be able to do so. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, evolution happening on those timescales, 15,000 years with all this diversity, then decimated by a non-native species, and then some sort of you know, new evolutionary process happening on the timescale of decades. I mean, that just challenges my mental image of how speciation works. And so for speciation, for sure. But one thing to keep in mind about evolution. So evolution, you know, we think of as survival of the fittest, which is also then the death of the less fit. And if you've got any population out there and say there, you've got a population of some animal and some are better at dealing high temperatures, some are deal better dealing at lower temperatures, and that is coded in their genes. If you get a heat wave and it knocks out a bunch of the ones that don't like high temperatures, that's an evolutionary event. In that single heat wave, evolution has occurred because the population looks genetically different after the event. And so you can get evolution happening more or less instantaneously so long as you've got enough variability in your population. You've got individuals that are different and those differences are coded in their genes. Yeah, a diversified portfolio, as it were, right? So, I, okay, another example I want to talk about uh, from the book is the possums in Australia. I don't know why, but there's something delightful about this story. I mean, for a long time, people didn't even know these possums. I forget exactly. Are they mountain mm -hmm. pygmy possums? Is that how, what That's I should it. call them? Mountain pygmy yep. possums. Can you tell us about how we even found out about these guys? Curious to know what they look like and some of the threats they're facing today. Sure. And that one is a really fun story because, you know, every once in a while, people will discover a species on the planet that had long been thought extinct. And that's the case of the mountain pygmy possum, where it was known from fossils and had been described as a species, but nobody knew that there were any still kicking around. And the story of when it was found is a really fun one because there were a group of skiers who went skiing in a place called the Australian Alps. These are the highest mountains on the Australian continent where they get snow in the winter and have ski resorts. And they were hanging out up in their little ski chalet uh, up above snow line skiing. And they found this little creature hanging out in their cottage. And some people are like, oh, it must be a rat. And others are like, no, it's not a rat. It's clearly a marsupial. Maybe it's a fastigale, which is some obscure marsupial that I, I learned about in this, yeah, yeah. In this process. And then one of the guys there took a, like, a shine to this little creature and was feeding it cheese while it sat on his shoulder. And he decided, I want to figure out what this thing is. When was um, this, by the way? This was in like the 60s? 1960s. Or 60s. Okay. And 
Yeah. And so this guy who found it, um, I was able to contact him and interview him directly, which was super fun. And he told me about finding this organism. He told me about how he wanted to try and identify it. And so he told me he packed it up into a biscuit tin and he put that biscuit tin into his rucksack. And then he skied down the mountain in a blizzard with this little creature in this biscuit tin in his back. And he, he got to Melbourne back to his university and he went to the library to look at, you know, all the Australian mammals. And he's like, but it's not here. What is this thing? And so he decided to take it to one of the wildlife management agencies in Australia. And he brought it to an expert on Australian mammals. And, you know, the guy looks at it and he's like, well, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah. Which is this strange creature that nobody had ever seen before. And so they took it into captivity. They figured out that it was, in fact, this long lost species that was known from the fossil record. And somehow along its life, it had figured out, evolutionarily speaking, how to live at high elevation and actually hibernate under the snow and live in that high elevation environment. And so people were super excited. They've since found it in three different regions of those mountains. And, you know, it's this cute little sort of mouse-sized brown-gray creature with a prehensile tail. So it can use its tail to like grab things and move them around, which is really quite cute. Yeah. The challenge for these guys is that they live in these mountain environments and they're getting hit by things like invasive species, particularly cats and foxes that like to eat them. And at the same time, they're getting hit by climate change, which is playing out in all these different ways. Probably the most severe of which is that by having less snow in the mountains because of climate change, their winter hibernation is getting more harsh. It seems like a paradox at first, and it's because when the snow falls in the mountains, they are buried underneath the snow in their burrows, and the snow acts as insulation, keeping them from getting too cold. When the snow starts to melt more often, then they're actually exposed to lower air temperatures, and they have to burn more calories to survive the winter, and it's getting harder and harder for them to survive those conditions. And so what people are worried about is that these things are actually going to go extinct because they're not going to be able to survive the harsher winters because it's warm. And so there's this real question of what do you do with these things? Yeah. Well, and as I recall, there's also even a, a little bit of a, a habitat fragmentation piece of it. There's a, some of the roads up the ski mountains are cutting them off and they're getting run over and things like that. But in the past, they had existed in the lowlands, correct? So in terms of some of the options, if conservationists want to dedicate efforts into preserving these species in the wild, like what are some of the options on the table for this possum? Yeah. So it's a hard case because most of the people I spoke with agree that if you just leave it to its own devices in the mountaintops, it, it's just a matter of time till it yeah. disappears. You can do some things to prolong that, like feed them after fires and, you know, hunt out the cats and the foxes to give them more space, put tunnels under the roads to keep them from getting hit. There's little bites you can sort of take at that apple to make it more hospitable for the, the long term. But it's not clear that that's going to work in the long run. Those may just be short term solutions. And so there's one group of researchers in Australia that are saying, huh, well, maybe we should move it someplace new where it can survive and we don't have to keep looking after it in the same way. And those researchers noted that if you actually look at the fossil record in a species, most of the fossil record comes from a totally different type of habitat. It comes from like a lowland wet forest rather than a mountaintop. And what they're wondering is maybe this organism still has in its evolutionary history, the genes to be able to adjust to living back in a lowland forest, just in a way that doesn't involve hibernation. And if you keep these things in captivity, they don't necessarily hibernate if it stays warm. So maybe you could introduce them to this habitat that evolutionarily they used to live in, and maybe they'd be just fine down there. And so they're actually working on getting permits to 
raise them in captivity, and slowly start releasing them into these other kinds of habitats in the hopes that maybe they can survive there. And I think this is really interesting in conservation more broadly because this is one species and you could look at the details of that species. But this kind of issue is going to come up over and over and over again in the decades to come, where we have species that are living in a place that's increasingly unsuitable for them. Maybe they can't get to places that suit them better. Do we start to intervene? And under what circumstances do we intervene and move things deliberately so they can persist? Yeah, I mean, this to me was actually stepping back and revisiting this framing of the rescue effect and these different forms with which were, I mean, I guess the way I understood it is also pointing to possibilities for how organisms or ecosystems might respond to environmental pressures. And with each of them, I mean, one of the, I think, real utilities of that framing is that with each of them, there is a possibility of human intervention. And then a question of whether it's appropriate or, or not to intervene. Is that a fair you know, assessment of yeah. like, why you wanted to write the book? Yeah, I, I was interested in these questions about adaptation and how we think about adaptation and conservation. And so yeah. one of the things I've done in the book is I've tried not to give you the answer, right? I haven't come and said, this is what we should do with the mountain pygmy possum, or this is what we should do in that case. Because I think that there's a lot of dilemmas that are raised by the kinds of things we're going to have to deal with, a lot of trade-off decisions. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because if you start looking, you can see these things coming. These kinds of questions are going to get more and more common. We need to start having a conversation in conservation about how we feel about these things and how we want to approach what are sure to be many, many more cases that look like the mountain pygmy possum. Can you tell me a little bit about how the book's been received? I mean, have you been having conversations? I assume that there's a lot of hope, optimism, which there's so much doom and gloom in environmental storytelling writ large that I'm sure there's some people who are like, oh, finally a book that doesn't bum me out. But I could also <laughs> imagine that there are people who are frustrated, threatened by some of the interventions at least being put forward, even if you're not directing people as to what is right or wrong. Tell me a little bit about the reaction so far. Sure. I would say so far it's been largely positive, but I definitely have heard from a few colleagues and whatnot saying, you know, you're walking a fine line here. And there's two different fine lines. You identify one of them. One of them is that conservation is actually pretty deeply invested in a, a fairly sort of doom and gloom narrative yeah. about the world is falling apart and yeah. we need to act. And listen, I think that's great if people get motivated to act because of that and they do so. I haven't taken that approach in this book. I've talked much more about what you know, nature can do and how we can help, which is a decidedly more optimistic tone. Personally, I find the notion that we can accomplish something, that we can get things done more motivated than the threats and the urgency. But I think there's place for both of those, but there's potential for some controversy there. Yeah. And then the other piece is that as people are getting more desperate, they're actually starting to contemplate interventions that would have seemed preposterous 30 years ago. Things like moving species around, things like selective breeding, things like changing the genetic composition of organisms that are out there in the wild, all the way up to things like genetic engineering, which, you know, with the case of the American chestnut, is now entering into the domain of conservation. We have a real world example where if the United States government approves this in the next year or so, we may have our first conservation GMO. You know, you also, we sort of alluded to it in a second ago, it's a little hard to, I feel like we have to touch on de-extinction. I don't love that term because I think, uh, as you point out in the book, it's a little bit of a misnomer. We're not actually resurrecting something that went extinct. If anything, we're creating something, organisms that may not have quite been possible before because we've got to have 
an embryo that could actually bring him to term. We interviewed Beth Shapiro on the show <laughs> months ago, and you make reference to her. I actually thought that one of the take-homes for me in my conversation with Beth was that it's not necessarily about the novelty of resurrecting something like the woolly mammoth or something like that. It's it, one helpful way to think about de-extinction, if you want to use that term, isn't thinking about the the ecosystem function that it provides. It's not necessarily to have the organism back on the planet. It's more about what that organism might do in relation to several other organisms in an ecosystem. What's your sort of reaction to um, to that idea? Are you open to that? Does that sure. sound like the right framing? Sure. I'll respond to that. So just a little background. So de-extinction is using things, tools like genetic engineering to try and bring back something that is like a species that has gone extinct. So woolly mammoth is a great example of that. Yeah. And I also did interview Beth for the book and she was very helpful. So I think if you're going to go down this road, that kind of thinking does make sense that maybe we should bring back woolly mammoth for its ecosystem role. But I think we also really need to be realistic about whether that is the case. And you, you probably noticed in the book, I took on that question because I was really interested in that. And even the Russian scientist, Sergei Zimov, who's done a ton of work on Pleistocene Park and has talked about bringing back the woolly mammoths. When I asked him point blank, one of the arguments is that woolly mammoths will help keep the permafrost cold in the Arctic, which will keep carbon trapped in the soil. So we need woolly mammoths to trample the permafrost or trample the snow and keep it cold. So there's like um, a climate uh, argument for perhaps. And that's, it's uh, a, yeah. And it's a really interesting argument. When I asked the guy who does a lot of work on this, you know, what about the species we have right now? Bison and horses and moose and caribou and things like that. And he, and he said, yeah, well, they can do the job, most of the job. You don't actually necessarily need mammoths in most parts of the world where you would like to get that climate benefit. And so I asked him, so then what's the barrier to moving forward? He's like, well, people don't want those animals there. And so if you sort of step back, he's like, well, then why are we talking about mammoths for this? Because if they don't want reindeer, why are they going to want mammoths in their system or mammoth-like animal, which is a big, dangerous creature that's not going to you know, observe your fences and could wreak havoc in an ecosystem from a human perspective? And so I think if we're going to make those ecosystem arguments, we should be pretty clear-eyed about whether we think this is actually a necessary part of getting there. And if so, what kind of time frame are we on? So I'm not opposed to it, I would say, conceptually. Um, I'm just not necessarily convinced by some of the arguments that I've seen out there. Yeah. I mean, the, the example from Beth's book that I remember that really stuck out, I think, was a, a ferret of some sort or a... a black, black-footed ferret. Black-footed ferret, yeah, that, that I think is threatened. And there is a real case for the ecosystem service that it provides to support other uh, organisms in that environment. That's my memory of it. Well, and, and that's yeah. also a species that is still around. You're right. And the problem with that species is that there's so many individuals have been lost that they've lost a lot of their genetic diversity. And so there's an interest in increasing the genetic diversity and, you know, just bringing more individuals. So there's like, I think they've done this now where they've cloned a black-footed ferret from a sample that was 30 years old and basically re-added it to the gene pool which is cool. And then there's another effort, I think, to try and genetically engineer them so that they can help fight a disease that is also affecting their population. So there's sort of multiple things going on in that case. Your memory of Beth's book is so much better than mine. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, uh, I had one more chapter I wanted to talk about, and then I want to get to some bigger philosophical questions. Ascension Island. 
which has this kind of very interesting, cool history. It was the second island that Napoleon Bonaparte was banished to. And I think, actually, I'm sorry, it wasn't Ascension Island. That was where it was next door to, where, what, what, okay. You know what? Yeah, so he was, he, so, yeah. so the second time that Bonaparte was exiled, he was taken to St. Helena. Thank you. Which is okay. a tropical yeah. central Atlantic island. There are not very many islands in the middle of the Atlantic. The next island over is Ascension. Right. Okay. And Ascension Island, because the British wanted to keep an eye on Napoleon, they set up shop there. And then after Napoleon died, they didn't leave. Uh, and you described this island as having undergone this multi-decadal terraforming. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happened there? And out of curiosity, did you visit it? Oh my goodness, I would love to, but no. I wrote uh, my book in COVID. I didn't get to visit anything. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Oh, what a bummer. Well, it felt like we went there when you're reading the book. So anyway, well, tell that, us about Ascension I, Island. Yeah. That, that's what I was going for. So Ascension, yeah. So Ascension Island was a little rock, a volcanic island in the middle of the Atlantic that it was very hot. And because it was far from any mainland and because it had very little rain, it had very few plants. Most of the people who first went there were explorers and, you know, they could find like four or five different kinds of plants. It turns out there's some more of them, but they're like, you know, mosses that live down and deep in the cracks. But anything you'd like in a non-botanist might recognize as a plant or about five. Yeah. And most of it was just rock. If you've ever been to Hawaii and you've walked on like a recent lava flow, most of the island was like that, just cinders and sharp rocks. And so the sailors that were stationed there were not particularly fond of it. The people who visited were not particularly fond of it. And they had a really hard time getting any fresh water there because there was very little source. And Joseph Hooker actually visited the island coming back from some trip headed to London and said, huh, I wonder if you could improve this island in some way by bringing in new plants. Maybe you could provide food, you could provide timber, and maybe you could get more water on the island. Maybe you could create a situation where the plants are drawing more water out of the air or creating sort of positive feedback loop with soils that trap more water, and you could actually make it a better place for people to live. And he got the attention of the Admiralty in England, and they decided they were going to move forward with this plan. And over a course of decades, they brought probably thousands of different plants from different parts of the world to Ascension Island, and they put most of them up high on the island where there was a sort of regular foggy mist. The clouds would hit the top of the island, and the idea was that maybe there's enough moisture up there to get these plants established. And while most of the plants never made it, some of them died before they ever got there, many others died once they got there, um, probably several hundred of them did. And so this system moved from just a handful of little plants, nothing bigger than a, you know, a shrub, to now, today, on top of Ascension, there's a cloud forest. And this cloud forest has been sort of built just like spontaneously out of all this mishmash of species from all over the world that have been dumped there. Now, you talked about novel ecosystems before. This is like the novelist of novel ecosystems in that most of these species have not interacted with each other before, and they're still figuring it out, but they've created this whole really cool ecosystem. And that, you know, when you look at the photos and videos, which is as close as I've gotten to the top of Ascension, it's this damp green oasis with ponds, and bamboo and epiphytes on the trees, and mosses. That's really quite incredible. And so the, this island has been completely transformed from this sort of rocky, sharp, dry place, at least on the top of that mountain into this sort of green oasis. 
That's incredible. I mean, and I, so I want to go there too. That sounds great. That sounds like a nice vacation, but it also, there is something about novel ecosystems overall that make me feel a little squeamish because I think a lot of us were raised on this idea. A lot of people who are, who identify as environmentalists or as conservationists were raised on this idea that novel ecosystems are some sort of violation of nature, right? And I think that you speak to this in the book that like nature uh, and conservation has historically had this real sort of museum-like attitude of let's keep something in some historic state. And if we're going to manage it at all, it's managed it to what it quote unquote used to be. And that is an unrealistic and certainly with climate change, increasingly impossible goal. And you say we need to adopt a new attitude. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you've described that really well. And I've been in conservation long enough to have gone through a process and sort of starting from a different point and going on my own journey in how I think about ecosystems and species. And I think there's a lot of knee-jerk reaction in conservation to this sort of sense of what is a native species, what is a, a correct ecosystem. And it's usually got some vaguely defined historical standard that we think that ecosystems are supposed to look like and they're supposed to work that way. And as you pointed out, especially with climate change, it, it's really an impossibility going forward. But it also, it, we don't have to view them that way. Ecosystems have always changed. We talked about the example of, you know, the ice sheet coming down in North America and retreating. Those ecosystems fundamentally changed as those processes were happening and species were moving from one location to another. That's okay. That's just nature. And so I think we sometimes overreact when we look at new species and new places or changes in how ecosystems work. And I think one of our challenges in conservation going forward is to check ourselves. It doesn't mean that we can't value native species. It doesn't mean we can't value particular ecosystems working in a particular way. But at the same time, I think we need to recognize that novelty in nature, when species are getting to new places, when they're evolving new traits, when they're organizing into new kinds of ecosystems, that's actually evidence of the rescue effect. That's evidence that nature is taking care of itself. And so we shouldn't necessarily immediately say we must fight against that. I think we're going to be much better off to say, okay, let's look at how nature is changing. Let's understand that it's going to continue to change. Let's celebrate those changes to the extent that they're consistent with what we want to see in our ecosystems and really only choose to fight those battles to try and keep things the same in the cases where it's extremely important to us. Because I think we'll get a lot more done. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I think that extremely important piece is really hard because I think like part of the squeamishness that that I'm sure, you know, that I suspect you can still feel as well, that I think a lot of conservationists can, is the sort of playing God aspect of it. This to me is also what makes it an Anthropocene question, that w historically the forces of nature were the domain of God and the gods, right? And increasingly humans have power agency, genetic engineering, for example, geographic rescue, all kinds of assisted migration. I mean, we are capable of so much more that the question of what is our healthy relationship, given our power and increasing power, look like, I think part of the squeamishness is a question of what is sacred, right? That there is part of the conservationist instinct has always been to 
contain a, some sort of historical state in reverence to what it once was and in reverence to the power of nature. And if we're meddling with that, are we robbing it of some sort of intrinsic value? And, and I think that's where the discomfort can come from. Forget utilitarian sort of ecosystem services considerations. I mean, what, what's interesting to me is how do we hang on to the sacred elements that brought so many people to conservation in the first place? Yeah. And listen, I think you've done a really nice job of describing that. And what you're really describing is a religious position. Yeah, um, it is. I think it you, is. You, I think that's fair. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with that view per se. Um, for me, there's a pragmatic piece of it, which is that, fine, it's not going to work that way. You know, let's get real here. Totally. Um, but the, there's actually another level, which is that if we, if you focus on the notion that things should look in a certain way or be as they were in the past, then there really is a lot of like game overness part to a lot of conservation. But there's other things that we can value and revere in nature. We can revere evolution in action. Yeah. We can revere the rescue effect happening. We can revere how species are capable of coming together in new combinations like Ascension Island and be in awe of that and see that as something beautiful and valuable in its own right. So there's a choice here that has sort of gravitated in conservation toward a particular set of like classical values of what is important in nature. And those values aren't wrong. Values are never wrong. Values are values. And so I think what is going to have to happen in conservation, though, in order for us to be successful moving forward is that I think there's a certain amount of questioning our values that we are going to need to ask ourselves. And it may be that that just reinforces how some people believe. Great. It may help other folks sort of come to terms with some things that are happening and may make them more effective at getting to conservation outcomes going forward. Yeah. And I mean, let me speak a little bit more because you did say, you know, that's a religious perspective, I, but it may, perhaps an agnostic one. I mean, I think spiritual is a better term, honestly, because I do think it's about that which may not, which science may not be able to answer forces that are mysterious to us and that may be greater than us. I, I don't, I wouldn't anchor that perspective in any of the major religions of the world or in indigenous traditions for that matter. I th but I do think that ephemeral quality is, again, something that brings a lot of people to conservation in the first place. I And I guess for me, there's like a head to heart thing, because I do think the reality here is that the world is changing at an accelerated rate. We don't have infinite time. We're not going to save every species. And there are going to be novel ecosystems created, whether we want them or not. We should think about some of the pragmatic, practical considerations about those ecosystem services. I also am interested in trying to retain something that that nods, at least, or acknowledges a sense of the greater than us, the ephemeral. Like I said, though. Sure. Like, I mean, you know where that, like, that, I think that's coming from a really common place for a lot of environmentalists and conservationists. Sure. And I appreciate the distinctions you're making. What I would ask you, though, is turn the, the sort of the tables and ask you, when you read about Ascension, yeah. were you excited about that ecosystem? Yeah, I was. I want to go there. And I don't really care what it used to be. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> and I, I, mean, I, I do. I want, I want, you know, I love Earth history. To me, when I think about the list of what are the great forces on, on planet Earth, I think tectonics, I think evolution, I think time itself is a force, right? And I think that what is possible when you have a deep perspective for deep time, it's, it introduces a sense of awe that's not unlike looking out to the stars, which is also a sort of, you know, <laughs> spiritual, religious uh, undertaking. 
So I want to go there. I also want my children and their children to inherit a planet that where they can have a relationship with it that's not tethered to some standard set by what it used to be. I think that's unfair to them. But I also think, so I'm just trying to like talk through and work through this residual squeamishness. I, maybe I need to find a word other than squeamy. <laughs> no, I, I, know what you, I know what you're feeling because I went through a lot of it doing the research on this book and yeah. questioning my own assumptions. And listen, I don't claim to have the right answers on any of this stuff. For me, the, the important part is the conversation. That, yeah. that That sort of you're getting excited about ascension, you know, is sort of contrary to conservation orthodoxy, right? It is. And, and why is that? And so that's worth asking a question about. Me getting excited about new species emerging in Lake Victoria. You know, Lake Victoria is arguably the most terrible example of human-caused extinction on the planet. And yet it's also this like really exciting place where evolution is happening in real time. How do I reconcile those two feelings at the same time? I talked in the book about lionfish would have been introduced into the Caribbean and caused lots of ecosystem changes and to this whole industry that is conservation by killing things where people go out and try to remove these fish from the reef. And to me, that's a great example of sort of asking yourself, it's like, well, is that what we're about in conservation? And is that animal really so bad? It does change ecosystems, no question. All species change ecosystems. But what should our relationship to nature look like going forward? And should we be asking ourselves about things like new species that arrive in places and ask ourselves, should we assume that they're bad? Or should we step back and say, well, how do they change things? And what do we want? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what we want, and I'm not sure anybody does. And I, uh, I told you at the outset that I was going to ask some unanswerable questions, and I think the <laughs> "what do we want?" Uh, it sort of sums it all up. I thought the book was incredible. You know, it gave me a real appreciation for how all of the things we're talking about and so much more are working in a variety of settings and environments, and and under a variety of anthropogenic stressors, both local and global. So, congratulations on it. I think you did a really good job, and I think it's a really important read. And for my money, I think it does uh, advance a very necessary conversation that we need to have about conservation in general. Good. Well, if I accomplish nothing more than opening up a dialogue, I'll be super satisfied. I think it's a really great book and, uh, and it's available, I guess, everywhere. <laughs> available everywhere. If it's not in your local bookstore, please ask them to stock it. You can also buy it online. Good stuff. Michael Webster, thanks so much for this conversation. Really enjoy talking to you. Great. Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much again to Michael Webster for that conversation. Thanks also to Brandon Burke for producing this episode. I'm Michael Osborne. See you next time.